Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 18th of January 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. So we'll release this a week after we recorded it, and who knows what's going to have happened in this week. I suspect quite a lot, potentially. So this may be a good distraction. Let's do a quick follow-up. Last year, we talked about your pie hole setup, Will, and recently you've done a follow-up blog post about that, about using a VPS as well as a Pi on your LAN. Yeah, so I've been running Piehole for, oh, I don't know, a month or so, maybe maybe two months now. And one of the reasons that I set it up in the first place was in order to restrict the amount of time that my kids spend watching YouTube. And actually, that's more valuable now we're trying to do homeschooling than it ever was before. Although, wouldn't you believe it, the school do link to YouTube videos um, with some of the, the classrooms. So I needed to be able to switch YouTube on and off relatively easily. And the UI that Piehole gives you allows you to do exactly that. So it was a smart choice, and I'm I'm still glad that I've done that. But one of the problems I was having was when you do turn these block lists on and off, sometimes it feels like you have to reload the cache, the block list cache, or you have to rebuild the, the index or whatever it is. And sometimes you don't, depending on how often you toggle these block lists on and off. Um, and depending on which block list you're using, it can take a long time. I think on a Pi 2, it was taking minutes to rebuild, say, a million entries in this block list. And coupled with that, I was really concerned about thrashing the SD card. This is a relatively cheap SD card because I'm a cheapskate. And Piehole is logging a lot of information to a file, which happens to live on an SD card, all the time. And it just felt a little bit clunky and a little bit slow. So I started to think about how I might be able to improve the setup a little bit, make it a little bit quicker. And so I built a VM and installed Piehole on that and then used that as my upstream DNS server. And it resolved a lot of the problems that I was having. I also set one up after you recommended it last time, and I still run mine in a Pi, and to be honest, I was fairly lazy, installed it, got it working, and it worked. And I, was re- I wasn't I was really looking to do anything other than sort of reduce the amount of shite that gets sent out on all the various uh, web pages. So I just left as is, but I see you have three very different block lists, and why did you pick them, and what's the reason for them? Well, it's quite scientific. What I did was go on Reddit and type in best block lists, and those are the three that came up. So there's three there. The the OISD one is referred to, I think, as from one of the Piehole developers as being the best list that you could use. And then there's another list called the Wally 3K list, which has got, um, I don't know, a lot more sort of um, nefarious websites in it. And then another one called the Polish Filters Team, uh, which I picked up just at random off Reddit. But the combination of those three lists, for example, hasn't stopped anything working, has blocked the vast majority of adverts, and, and I whisper this now in case anyone's listening, has made all four or whatever the Channel 4 (laughs) on-demand service a whole lot easier to use. And you've used WireGuard as part of this. That's something we also talked about. Failure made it sound very, very easy. Yeah, and and based on that conversation, um, I I thought I wanted to host this. Well, I could have hosted this pie hole on, on one of the machines running on my network, but I'm quite interested in moving 
some of these machines out of my house so that I don't have the electricity overhead and I don't have the heat overhead and the noise and so on and so on. And so what I wanted to do was was ship these off outside of my network. Um, if the internet connection is down, then not having a DNS server is not really going to be much more of a problem. <laughs> so I thought I'd, I'd try it in the cloud. Um, but I wanted it to be accessible from my local network, so I didn't have to do too much opening of firewalls and all that sort of jazz. And so based on the conversation that we had uh, about WireGuard, I thought I'd give that a go. It was pretty straightforward. I got it running in well under half an hour, I would say. I found a good blog post on the Linode website that talked me through getting WireGuard set up. I had a few problems around some of the certificates and some of the questions it was asking I wasn't 100% certain about. But in the end, got it working, got the routing set up. And yes, it was pretty straightforward. It was certainly a lot easier than setting up an OpenSSL VPN, that's for sure. Oh, good God, yeah. Let's do some feedback then. And we got a fair bit about the predictions. The first one's from Joshua. He said, I'm surprised no one mentioned the looming death of Firefox. (laughs) Even though I rely on it heavily, mainly due to extensibility, I honestly don't see it lasting all of 2021. They don't have their ducks in a row in terms of financing. And unless they focus 100% on the browser, the market share will continue to drop like a rock. Well, the reason I didn't bring it up was I didn't want to bring attention to it in case it jinxed the fuck out of us. So (laughs) thank you, Joshua. Prick. (laughs) Well, Peter also said, I'm a long-time user of Firefox and intend to stay one for as long as possible. I think if and when Mozilla goes tits up, the community will take it on, or at least one of the current forks will start to dominate. Now, Joshua... I think you're wrong because they have got their ducks somewhat in a row because they did the deal with Google, didn't they? Which is supposedly for another three years, I think. So there's no way that Firefox is going anywhere in the next year or two at least. Like It's going to continue. It might not progress very well. It might lag massively behind Chrome, even more so than it is now in terms of market share. And it may even get really slow and shit or whatever, but it's it's not going to disappear. And as for one of the community forks, what do we think about that? I mean, it's too much of a job, isn't it? I don't think that's possible. I think it, it, maybe a decade ago, you might have been just about able to do that. But there's so much going on, so many people involved. And to be honest, with Google sort of driving that and all the industry behind them, you're never going to be able to compete with it. And you've got to be backwards compatible. That's the worst thing about a browser. You can't just do the new stuff and do it all cleanly and throw away everything. You've got to be able to do all the sites from almost every time any of those standards change too. Yeah, I I agree. I think maintaining a browser or even developing a browser is such a big job, such an expensive job that just a fork would not be reasonable. Even packaging a browser is hard enough. Hmm. As we've seen with the Chromium Snap, for example, the, the reason that Snap exists and why canonical defaults to it in ubuntu is because it was such a ball ache to build chromium so the idea of forking firefox by some small community project it needs a lot of money behind it but what are we going to do because firefox is going to die i agree with joshua and peter it's just a matter of time you three need to shut up as what you need to do (laughs) maybe we've got the time now you know we joke about it but are we just going to stand by and watch it disappear and fade and, and blink become the only thing um, is that acceptable? Is that what we want? What about Edge? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's all blink-based, isn't it? That's the thing. Like we, we need to keep Firefox 
going somehow or other and and maybe we need a new foundation or something mm. something that is going to manage it properly but that needs a lot of money but look what they're doing they're doing this trustworthy ai stuff and all that and yeah they're all lofty goals but geez get your house in order first it's not going to happen failing we need to do something about it i think there is a faint flicker of hope on the horizon which is that with the recent uh, changes that WhatsApp announced, we saw massive influx into uh, Telegram and into Signal, more open platforms. And what they're doing with Firefox containers, I hope that this will spark interest in the general computer-using community and people will realize that Firefox does have something to offer. If they can't capitalize on that, then we're fucked. Why don't they just do a Firefox supporter thing and they just say, you know, I don't need the VPN, I don't need whatever, I don't need Pocket or all that shite. Just give me a small, reasonable sum I can contribute every few weeks, month, whatever. And then I can, I know that they're going to spend that on the browser and build the bloody browser properly. Like. Yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. I recently moved our website over to Linode, and I'm really happy with it. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. Thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated, especially now that we're weekly. If you want to join those people, you can go to late night linux.com slash support. And remember for $5 or more, you can get an advert free RSS feed on Patreon. And if you want to get in contact, late night linux.com slash contact. Just a few days until the next community mumble get together, which is on the 29th of January at 10 p.m. UK time, latenightlinux.com slash mumble for details. You just need a mumble client, headphones and push to talk. And hopefully we'll have a good time chatting about all things Linux and random stuff as well. So do come and check that out. So quite a long one from James, and I'm going to read all of it because it's going to trigger failure. <laughs> so James says, on the topic of predictions, I was interested that the old convergence prediction came up again. To me, the only convergence we will get is already here, data convergence. Hardware prices are relatively low, and the need to add keyboard, mouse, and monitor to a phone to use it as a computer will not take off, in his opinion. However, Google has been offering data convergence for a long time, and the experience continues to get better. Admittedly, I am a bit of a Google fanboy. Here we go, Phelim. <laughs> I use a Chromebox at work full-time, as well as a Chromebook at work. I have a Chromebook and Chrome tablet at home, and Chrome running on Ubuntu on an old Mac, and an Android phone. All relatively cheap hardware, and I almost seamlessly access all of my data very easily in whatever format suits. 
I hope he gets blocked as a uh, spammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It carries on. I can see that I will always want a phone and laptop for non-convergence uses as they have their unique benefits. I could possibly live without the desktop, but would need to upgrade the laptop from a Chromebook to something that would run Linux. To be honest, I would probably keep the Chromebook as well, just to piss Phelan off. Uh, <laughs> So I can see Apple simplifying the user experience by having a single OS running on all their devices. But Apple is a company that makes money from devices, so I'm sure they would prefer not to encourage convergence and lose some device sales. That's an interesting point. It's not in Apple's interest to only sell you an iPad. They want to sell you an iPad and a MacBook Air and a Mac Pro and an Apple Watch and the headphones and the HomePods and all the rest of it. Yeah, that is a good point. But I still, I still feel, I mean, it was me that made the point about convergence. And I just, I've just, I'm quite excited by the way that Apple's taking macOS in this direction. The fact that you can use like an app, like take an app like Ableton with you and use it in tablet form in front of you and get back home and plug a keyboard into it. And it's true about not the duplication of hardware, but it just seems to be the way that Apple's going. Yeah. We've already seen them diversify their market into dongles and and you know headphones and power connectors and all that sort of jazz they seem to already be moving in that direction and the the macbook pro might just become like the ipad pro is the same price as a macbook pro effectively and then when the keyboard is 200 pounds you know that pretty much is the macbook pro tier yeah but this idea of data convergence james is right i mean this has been around for a long time i can edit a document on my phone put the phone on the table, open up a web browser and just continue exactly where I was. And that is surely the more realistic version of convergence rather than plugging my phone into it. Let me just get the cable plugged in and let me get the HDMI adapter and all the rest of it. Like it just, I think he's right here. And it, this does seem to be feedback that always comes to us after we talk about convergence, but I, it's just still a dream of mine to have one device and maybe if everything could be wireless, if the video output could be wireless, which you can kind of do with the Chromecast and stuff, but it's not quite right. But if we could get to that point where there was just one device, one phone device, and it just like has a projector in it that projects on the wall or some just ridiculous sci-fi thing like that, I think it would be cool. But I think ultimately, yeah, you're right, James. In the defense of free, I think you don't have to be using Google to do all this. It might not be as slick maybe as their system, but I have a phone running lineage with KD Connect and various other apps. I use Nextcloud on a server, so I've got all my contacts, emails, etc. And my TV has a Kodi box, and I can send videos to my TV from my phone, from my PC. I can control my PC from my phone and vice versa. There isn't only just Google, and I would like people to maybe go that way too. Well, that's true, yeah. And it's flawless. Flawless. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I totally believe you. But yeah, you're, you're right there that even if you do want to just go the completely open source way, it's it's more about data convergence, isn't it? It's about yeah, for sure. sending your stuff to each machine. It's not about having one device that just does everything. Yeah, I think, I think and I, to be honest, I do look at the Pine Phone stuff, and I think, yeah, you could dock it and all that, but also you could get a Pine tablet or a Pine laptop, and those devices are from the same company doing each of their little slots really well, and I think they offer quite an attractive position, to be honest. Yeah. 
I still don't think it can replace the kind of apps that I'm talking about. You know, the, the way that you edit this podcast, for example, I don't think that could be done in any kind of Chrome browser anytime soon. Um, and there's quite a few things like that that I don't think will migrate to a browser terribly quickly. Not with my data anyway. Yeah, video editing is a classic one as well. And True. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of applications that aren't really ready for it, but it's not necessarily about using the same application in the web browser. Again, it comes back to that data convergence. You could potentially be connecting to that data with a phone and you know just do a couple of quick video edits or audio edits on your phone that is just connected to a server where the data is and the... I, I don't know, but I think that we haven't quite got there with the real heavy content creation stuff, but with simple stuff like Office, I think we've been there for a long time. Yeah. You know that meme of Buzz Lightyear looking out the thing? VNC everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got some feedback about the home monitoring and automation stuff we talked about. Shano said, I don't use much in terms of home automation, but I set this up over Christmas to track health-related air quality stuff. The indoor air quality results have been mildly terrifying. <laughs> I'm sorry to be childish, but the indoor air quality after eating a load of Christmas pudding and turkey, <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. But this is a blog post he links to on uh, Belena, I think you say. Build an air quality monitor with InfluxDB, Grafana, and Docker on a Raspberry Pi. And I'm tempted, but again, I think that I'll just be too scared when I see how <laughs> shit the air quality is, even indoors in London. This has been something that I've been thinking about recently. We've got quite a lot of building work going on around our house, various new sort of small housing estates going up. And I'm sure that I have when I hoover, I hoover up a lot more dirt than I used to. And I'm interested to know about the, the like particulate content of the air that's coming from these building sites. So I think I might have a go at this and see what it's like. You're just looking at ways to try and find out if you should or shouldn't Hoover. Well, I'll sue the council and then retire. That's more <laughs> yeah. on my game. So Steve wrote, my smart things, not the brand journey started quite by accident. In the before time, long, long ago, I traveled for work. I maintain a sizable home lab, which I use constantly to do testing for work. And I VPN home daily. This lab has a really crappy, although unknown at the time of purchase, 10 gigabit Ethernet switch that connects the disks to the various VM hosts. The problem is that this stupid switch falls over if someone sneezes three doors down. It has a known issue with the state table filling up and the switch crashing, and the only way to deal with it is to hard power cycle it. I ended up getting a tech-in smart plug and putting Tasmota on it, creating a VLAN for it and connecting it to an independent network so that I could always power cycle this stupid switch remotely. I started to become interested in creating my own sensors after discovering Tasmota. The end result is that I now have 45 hosts on my IoT VLAN. Christ. As you can imagine, each web interface didn't scale, so I ended up adopting Home Assistant. I've been writing a series on opensource.com. Joe, you'd appreciate that I am largely anti-cloud, and that is how I approach this. Even if you aren't interested in Home Assistant, the first three articles have some good technical details and are not totally software-specific. This series will probably be 12 parts or so when they're done. There are currently three parts in editing waiting to be published. And he asked us to link to that. So yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. That uh, does sound pretty interesting. 
Yeah, that does actually. It sounds great. I might have to look into it. I didn't mention in the home automation thing, but we've got a broken fridge. It constantly freezes. So I put a temperature sensor in it and connected it to a plug that turns it on and off. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I put a delay in so that it's not constantly firing up the <laughs> cooling motor, but yeah, it works. Wow. I don't know. Just controlling 220 volts or 110 if you're in the States, it's just terrifying. Well, it is isolated with a relay. It's just where you make a mistake and it like flicks it on and off like 50 times a second and then it just blows up. It will freeze my beer. That'd be the worst. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into your Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's-eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies, and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your free Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late-night-linux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late-night-linux. Some random questions, then. Jason asked, what's your favorite open source email server solution? Uh, Gmail. <laughs> oh, hang on. That doesn't count, does it? <laughs> I've only ever really used XSIM, and that isn't much fun to set up. So I've just, just decided that life's too short to run an email server. Postfix with Dovecot for me. Mm. I, I still run an email server, and I, I, run the, I maintain the Linux Voice one, and I'm using Postfix with Dovecot. And I use RSpamD. I did use Spam Assassin for ages, but RSpamD I find a little bit less CPU intensive on my really, really cheap low end box that's running this. I've installed it ever since you mentioned it in Linux Voice magazine. Oh, really? And have yet to configure it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still running. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Reliably gets updated too, it just doesn't do anything. <laughs> But don't you have constant problems with emails not arriving and, you know, other things like Gmail not wanting to accept emails and stuff? No, I mean, the other, like Gmail's a pain in the arse. They, they do things and they, they don't tell you they're going to do them. And all of a sudden your email's getting bounced. Like the weirdest one I had, I had to link, um, like I, my, my server came at an IP6 address. I don't use it for anything because I have no way to reach it on IPv6, but. I had to then configure it in DNS with a, a quad A record and stuff. Um, and, you know, they just did that one day and that was the end of that. And then all of a sudden email got bounced and I do need to get around to setting up DKIM properly on it, which I have not done. So yeah. Yeah. It's a pain in the arse. And I wish somebody would do a nice setup of all these things. But then again, it works when it works and then you don't touch it. Mm. Just update the packages and you're fine. That's the worst thing for me, actually. It's it's so infrequent that I have to edit it that I've forgotten how I set it up. So when I, I when there is a problem, I have to go and relearn it all again, which with Postfix is just horrible. Yeah, it's a lovely format, really. <laughs> the same with XM. Once it's set up, it's really easy. Like if you want to add aliases or whatever, it's just trivial. Just open one file, put them in there, restart the server, job done. 
but it's just setting it up in the first place that you do it once it's so painful it's like childbirth you don't remember how bad it was <laughs> it was traumatic for you <laughs> <laughs> well i'm afraid i side with joe here uh the last time i set up an email server spam house was still a thing i don't know if it is anymore but uh i've still got memories of battling with that for a long long time and then having to deal with all of the other nonsense that comes with it and yeah i can't be asked at least use proton mail for god's sake and not gmail heathens yeah but then you know i've been using gmail since it uh, was invite only you know i'm just familiar with it and uh no I, i do i know i should care more about email but i just don't i just life's too short man Tony asks, what is the one open source application the hosts would not be able to live without other than a browser? Does a terminal count? Yeah, I say terminal. I was going to say Vim. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Nano. <laughs> well, the thing is that it depends which way you look at this question, right? If it's one application, I could live without XFCE4 terminal because there's a million other terminals I could install. So if you look at it that way, I think that's one of the good things about the fragmentation we have in open source. If XFC didn't exist, I'd just use Plasma. Or if Firefox didn't exist, I'd use Chromium or something. You know, I'd, I'd, if Audacity didn't exist, I mean, that's the one that I use all the time, Audacity. And there are other ways to record and process audio on Linux. And I would just use that. So if you look at it that way, rather than one class of application, but one specific one, I don't think there's anything I couldn't live without. SSH. Mm. It is literally the conduit through which all my work goes. I'd be dead without that. But if OpenSSH didn't exist, what, is there another way to SSH out? I've never even looked into it. No, I, I don't think there is. <laughs> the, well, you can pay for the proprietary one, which just seems ridiculous. I can't remember the name of the company. It starts with a T, I think. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the only other one. Mm, that's a good one, though, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'd be buggered without that. And then there's things like MySQL, Apache, even GIMP, for example, that do a very specific job that have established themselves as the de facto standard. And yeah, of course, as you say, Joe, without those, there would be something else coming to fill its place. But generally speaking, those are the applications or the, the services that I turn to. Mm, but Apache... You could use Nginx for almost everything you can do with Apache. You might have to do things differently, but it would do the job. And MySQL, well, there's plenty of other. Maria or whatever would do do the job for that. And GIMP, okay, that's not the best. Krita is quite different, but you could do a lot of the same stuff. I'm, I'm not having it. I don't think, apart from that OpenSSH example, I don't think there's anything. But I've invested years and years and years learning how those specific applications work. True. And I cannot be asked to relearn them. Mm. And so if I had to relearn them, it would take me a long time to to get back up to speed again. And that would potentially cost me time, money, and all the other things that go with it. So I would be lost without them, put it that way. Well, thank goodness for open source, eh? And hopefully we won't ever have to live without our favourite applications. So with that, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be looking at the news. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.